Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. My guest this week is Tim Kaine an entrepreneur, economist, Air Force veteran, and latterly a candidate for the U.S. Congress. Tim is also the co-author with Glenn Hubbard of the acclaimed book Balance, the economics of great powers from ancient Rome to modern America. I started our interview by asking him about the thesis behind his book and why it is great powers end up falling on hard times. So, Tim, welcome to Free Exchange. Thanks very much for being with us. Now, your kind of magnum opus, if you like, is a book called Balance with Glenn Hubbard. Yes. I mean, it's about the way that great economies decline, and you see that as something that comes not from necessarily from external threats, but from a kind of stasis and, you know, almost eating themselves from within. I mean, how, how would you explain your theory, and how did you set about proving it, if you like? So we wanted to follow up on the 25th anniversary of Paul Kennedy's book, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. So the subtitle of our book is The Economics of Great Powers, and Paul's a historian, and Glenn and I are both economists. So we just start with the notion that we have better data than we did, t- than Paul had 25 years ago. Um, and we all know now, I think, that GDP per capita is really the measure of productivity that's the, the go-to, and that defines our productivity frontier. And, and we use that as a starting point to define economic power. And then uh, it's, it's such a fun book, John. We'll go back in time to look at the, the British Empire, of course, the Roman Empire, the uh, ancient Chinese. Ottomans, I think, make an appearance. The, yeah. the Ottomans, yeah, yeah, that's right. That was a lot of fun. So, um, But we, we included the British um, a bit cheekily because both Glenn and I think Britain's never really declined. Um, it's, yeah. it's been surpassed in some ways, yeah. but uh, we would dispute the notion that, uh, that there was ever a collapse of the British Empire. And in fact, Britain, I, I like to say, is the first country that converted from being a great empire to a good nation and that it did things against its own self-interest for values that it cared about, ending slavery in 1807. Um, Nonetheless, uh, Britons are prone to make mistakes just like Americans are and um, we warn that Paul's wrong when he says empires collapse due to imperial overstretch. That's just a bad idea. Um, If you look at the Roman Empire any other any other empire in history, it wasn't that it stretched too far that led to its demise. It was fiscal problems or monetary problems. The, the Romans debased their currency famously um, to the point where a silver coin had almost no silver in it. So uh, m- led to massive inflation. The Spanish Empire also had 
bankruptcies, I think, six times in a century. So it's that internal chaos, that internal imbalance that I think threatens the United States and that we think will probably be the undoing of the EU, although, you know, I will take a grain of salt. We thought Greece wouldn't be in uh, the EU at this point, and yet here it remains. And can you pinpoint a kind of moment in each of those empires where that process begins, or is it so gradual and incremental that you can just say, it's, uh, you know, it happened over the course of decades or mm-hmm. centuries? Mm-hmm. I think it happens when a country shifts from conserving its values to conserving its material gains. So it's a bad sort of conservatism. They don't want to have dynamic change. They want to protect jobs, right? God forbid that that we have the ditch diggers with their shovels lose out to uh, tractors and and um, you know modern capital equipment. So we're capitalists. We're just um, un, uh, unapologetic capitalists. We think capital growth is great. And I to modernize the the argument a little bit, um, this notion that AI is going to take all of our jobs. I mean, it's just. This is such an old story from the Luddites here in, in the United Kingdom to, um, to the saboteurs who uh, sabotaged the British, I'm sorry, the uh, French uh, shoe factory. There's this worry the machinery takes jobs. Just because it's computerized machinery doesn't really update the theory at all. Um, capital equipment, as it expands, liberates labor. And when you become too cautious about that, that's the decline of a, of a country. And the Romans famously did bread and circuses to sort of entertain their people, um, to sort of bribe them to be to be quiet. And on this automation point, I think it sort of it ties in with a bit of a sort of eschatological worldview you see a lot. I mean, we're here in London this week. We've had massive protests, and it's this idea that we're all heading to catastrophe yeah. seems to have kind of reasserted itself. Yeah. Um, in, in quite an interest, but you know that's been there throughout history. I mean, the Mayans would tell you that the the world was about to end. I mean, do you th- is that something you see in these these empires that you've studied as well? I I'm really confused by the hard left's um, environmentalism. Um, it's it's I think some people have argued that it's become a new form of religion, gives a sense of meaning, and of course there's an end times threat to it, like all good yeah. religions have. But as an economist, I keep saying, where's the harm? I'm not even denying that there's, you know, man-made global warming happening to some degree. I'm not sure how much. Um, I think it's very controversial. But where's the harm? And it's articulating the harms um, which which just haven't appeared, other than, well, the world will flood and we'll all drown, which makes no sense, right? Sea levels have already risen over the past century. Um, Cities that are on the edge of the ocean tend to retreat back a bit. Uh, so capital equipment tends to atrophy and it gets replaced about every 30, 40, 50 years. Look at the construction here in London. There are new towers sprouting up and old buildings being torn down. Oh, yeah. So it's quite I, just, <laughs> I just don't buy the harms, John. And to the extent I think it's been categorized that it could lead to 10,000 deaths. I mean, really, that's, that's sort of a, a bad quarter in the United States. Death is part of life. But what I care more about is... Ending poverty in Africa, to me, that's a much bigger priority than the than sort of make-believe harms of, of global warming. And there are other environmental issues that get neglected. P- plastics in the oceans, I care a lot about. Um, dolphins being killed and, and uh, poison toxins in, in water. Those, to me, get completely neglected by the religion of global warming. And obviously something that came up in, in Michigan, not too far from your own home state. Flint. Which, yeah. Yeah, you, you followed that poison. story, right. Yeah. So, I mean, just to come back to balance, um, can you see the ideas that you and Glenn um, 
came up with. How how would you apply them to the world at the moment? I mean, what do you, you've t- talked about America and the EU. I mean, how does it manifest itself in in terms of that decline? Is it because America's got huge national debt? Is it because it's over-consuming? Right. Or too much personal debt? Absolutely. Which... We're living in a really bizarre time monetarily. I think everyone knows that. In the United States, uh, the federal government alone is spending a trillion dollars more than it brings in in revenues. And in a $20 trillion economy, you know, that's roughly 5% of the economy year after year after year that it's spending that it doesn't have the revenues for. And we have the most serious candidates on the left, Elizabeth Warren, calling for just completely unattainable programs. And she'll say they'll be paid for with a wealth tax, very destructive. And it won't nearly accommodate her spending ambitions. So the unseriousness of the serious candidates on the left and even on the right, Trump's running trillion-dollar deficits. It's very frustrating. Um, The bill will come due, and this is our warning in the book that this has happened before. I would flip it a little bit to the current British situation in that we're we're ultimately optimists. And I'm an optimist about the United States and its great prosperity because we have a flexible, dynamic society. We have 50 states. I think what's, what's occurred in the last five years with the explosion of populism is that most democracies now have two parties. One is a nationalist party, which is said sneeringly, and the other is a globalist party. And I think all of our parties, and this is true in the U.S., we've lost a sense of federalism. And that's why I think the EU is problematic, that it robs the sovereignty um, with the sort of regulatory heavy hand of Britain. And when you lose state flexibility to experiment with different economic institutions, then you're going to slow down your economy when there's just one common standard that, that you know, there's no such thing in, as perfection in governance, right? There's progress, but there's not perfection. Now, what do you think the the way forward for the EU? I mean, there are a lot of people in the UK probably who don't really care because they want to be out and, you know, cast their own path. But looking at the EU from the outside, what do you think the best way forward for them, uh, you know, or is it just that they're going to have to manage decline? The famous phrase. No, that's a great question. I, I've One of the things we did in the book, John, which I, I'm most proud of, is that we tried to break out of the idea that there is a spectrum of capitalism with the cowboy capitalists in the United States compared to the Soviet-style um, socialists, um, and that there are many flavors of market uh, economies here in Europe. And we said there are at least three supermodels. There's the Nordic model, um, which is the wealthiest and the freest. Um, There's the central model, which includes uh, Germany and UK, which are poorer, actually, just slightly. And then there are the southern European economies, which involve very heavy-handed states, um, profligate spending, large debts. um, And they're, on average, about 50% of GDP per capita of the frontier, the U.S. economy presently. They've also got massive unemployment, and yet the most protected labor. So, you know, there are lessons there that that should be preserved. And I think the danger is the EU is sort of squelching that and trying to impose one common fiscal standard and maybe ultimately common labor rules. Um, So that's what we're pushing back against. I think that the the allure of the EU is we've got free trade, we're a commercial union, but it became so much more than that, a monetary union, a regulatory union, um, and and a migratory union. no limits on what migration might happen. There's one refugee policy, even when there could be ties to terrorism. 
So I think that's rightly what many British said. Um, can we just go back to the fiscal and monetary? And from my eyes over on the other side of the Atlantic, <laughs> the, the uh, Brussels doesn't want that to happen. It's all or nothing. You know, can't we just go back to being friends? And they're saying, no, no, it's the marriage. It's the whole kit and caboodle. It's kind of the tragedy of the EU is it was, it had in the 80s, you know, the sort of Thatcherite idea of a single market, right. the potential to be a great force for economic liberalism. And now it's kind of gone the other way. I mean, do you see something that echoes previous eras in the way that we talk um, about, you know, the vested interests building up these kind of relations and sort of, um, what can I say, regulatory capture yeah. has yeah, happened yeah. in a big way. Yeah, monopoly power is a real thing. Monopolies don't give a damn about progress. They don't want small startup companies disrupting their their highly profitable enterprises. So absolutely. And uh, it's one that's an issue that, that governments need to constantly be on guard against. And I think it's part of our balance um, hypothesis that when when you get a fusion of special interest capitalism or special interest democracy you're really you're really on the path to decline uh, it's the same in the states really. i mean I've, l- I've looked on this website and it lists everyone who's worked in the federal regulatory agencies oh, yeah. and then gone on and then worked in the industry that they were previously regulating yeah it's one of the reasons that i stopped working on tax policy because so many I saw so many people get on the treadmill of become a tax policy expert for the government, and then five or ten years later, you're a lobbyist or you're working for a big bank or, you know. So you write the laws, and then you go sell your knowledge to the companies that can most advantage it, which is why, you know, flat, simple taxes are the only way to go to maintain a strong economy. I mean, you ran as a Republican last year in your home state. Oh, no, you found uh, out. I mean, do you think do you think you're a bit of an outlier in the current Republican Party in the way that you are sort of I am, avowedly free trade? Uh, and I think like most people that listen to Think Tank podcast, I'm iconoclastic. I, I have views that don't always fit into you know neat boxes. So, you know, I hope we're all outliers. Um, yeah, I had a I, I had tried to um, emphasize that I'm a you know, pro trade, pro immigration Republican. Uh, he made the joke that I was the, from the Republican wing of the Republican Party, that old Reaganite uh, Bush um, view of the world. And that's, that is out of step with this new populism. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And what do you think? You're obviously, um, sorry, you're a specialist on immigration, particularly, and the, the story of America and much of its progress is people coming with nothing and making something of themselves. And do you think that cultural value is under threat now? Or is this going to dissipate once we have a different president? The, the immigration debate, unfortunately, went through what's happened to all modern debates is, you know, well, are you a racist or not? So which side are you on? When it's not really about race, um, it is about this really wonderful heritage we have in the United States as being open to immigration. Um, the founding president, George Washington, said his ambition was that the United States would be the asylum to the world. We're a long cry from that now um, and, and people's attitudes. Although I've done a public opinion polling to emphasize the American people are still very pro-immigration. Um, it's just the debate among the political class has become so polarized, as so many of them have. So, no, as a country, we still are very open. We're the number one country in the states in, in terms of bringing in one million legal immigrants per year. That's by far the most common path. The population of illegals has been stable for about 15 years, so there was a, uh, there was a bubble of um, Mexican labor that came up. But Mexico's prospering because of the free trade agreement. Um, so, no, I think the lesson that, that I'm trying to take now with my work on immigration is this. What's the great threat we face? And some people really emphasize terrorism, I think, wrongly. Terrorism is a persistent threat, but it's not an existential threat. Whereas great power competition with an authoritarian model in China, that's the threat we face. And how do we win against them through the lens of immigration? You know, we should, we should be welcoming every Chinese scientist, every refugee out of Hong Kong. I would, if Trump were smart, he'd say, everyone in Hong Kong, you're welcome to come here and be a U.S. citizen because, you know what, you're a refugee right now. You have a repressive yeah. government cracking down on you. That would be brilliant and really make the world take notice. And it's something, actually, a lot of Hong Kongers have this kind of strange limbo nationality where they're British nationals, brackets overseas. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think, I mean, I completely agree. I think our government could do a strike a blow for freedom and <laughs> offer some of them full nationality. I think it's, it's, such a, it's such a smart idea, and it really would reframe the way people think about China. Because I'm against um, a trade war with China. I don't think that helps them, and it, it doesn't help us. More trade, I still believe, and this is iconoclastic, more trade with repressive countries helps liberate and free those countries. It's a slow process, but it works. I was about, that was going to be my next question, is how much do you buy into this idea, speaking of China, that prosperity will beget a middle class that wants democracy and civil rights? Because it doesn't seem to have happened yet, but then again, they're not actually out of the middle income trap. No, no, no. even their average income in China is still... Um, I think about one, it's somewhere between one-fifth and one-seventh of, of the U.S. level. Um, there is a middle class. There's also, as what happens with most societies that go through rapid growth, the Korean model, the Japanese model, there tends to be a concentration of wealth early in that development process. But there is a middle class developing. They are exposed to ideas. They're touring around the world. I'm sure you've seen a surge of Chinese tourism here in London. Every single day. Yeah. Right here in Westminster. We're, we're right next to Westminster Abbey, so I saw, see masses and masses of and, tourists. And they're coming here and they're learning about the history of a free society. I mean, the birthplace of democracy. I just, I think people are impatient with um, development, uh, political development. And I think when China realized 
back in, let's say, the year 2001 and 2002, that 90% of the students that were going abroad were staying abroad. So, you know, let's encourage more Chinese students to come to the uh, British universities and American universities. Yeah, I mean, that's something you see even in schools now. There's entire schools that almost all the, all the pupils yeah. in, in the UK uh, are Chinese. Yep. So, who knows, maybe we're sowing the seeds for a more democratic China I think through we our education Absolutely. System. Um now, just to do a little shout-out for a project we're doing here at CapEx, uh, we have a series about illiberalism in Europe, um, and I think your work kind of touches on a lot of the issues that have been mm-hmm. raised there. I mean, what do you see? Surveying the continent, as you've, as you've suggested, you know, there's lots of different models there, but are there any countries you look at and think, that's going down a really bad path? I'm thinking of places like Hungary, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. I haven't followed the, the European scene as closely. I think the, the one point that I usually come back to is the success stories, um, where Americans are finally waking up uh, decades later that Sweden is not a socialist utopia. They, they shed that skin a long time ago, and they're economically very free. Bernie Sanders, our famous socialist um, candidate yep. for president, um, said we should, have a, we should have an economy that's more like the Nordics, where they have high minimum wages, and yet... Most, most of the Nordic countries don't have any minimum wage at all, yeah. um, so they have greater labor freedom. Um, so I look a little bit more at the Nordic success stories and their embrace of economic freedom. Um, I'm still really deeply worried about Spanish unemployment rates and Italians' instability, and I think the refugee crisis has only stressed out those economies more. But, um, John, I'm sure you know more about it than I do. <laughs> but I think from what you're saying, it sounds as though... A lot of coverage tends to concentrate on whether you call it populism, nationalism, some people call it fascism, mm-hmm. rise of Orban. But perhaps what you're saying is that the deeper underlying structural problems are maybe more of an issue in the longer term. Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. We're, we're in the U.S. Six, um, the minimum wage is a national fight for a $15 minimum wage. Thank God right now um, it's being adopted in states and cities where it's turning out to be disastrous. In Seattle, for example, they adopted it. The city commissioned their own report that came back months later and said, yeah, we've lost jobs because of this policy. Poor people are losing jobs because you're, you're pretending that you get to control wages. You can't. Governments can't control wages. Only prosperity leads or prosperity and economic growth in a dynamic economy will get you more pay for, for uh, the, the poorest. I mean, what do you think when you're when you look at the U.S. now? I mean, the growth rates are pretty good, but mm. is it slightly artificial because it's been kind of the economy has slightly been pump primed by all this borrowing? This is the hardest question for me, John, because it is partly artificial, but it's also partly very real. So the, the um, you know I'm an optimist about the IT industry, and I think Google and Facebook are offering real value, and they're they're often demonized. They're not perfect. There, there were certainly warping societies. I see iPhone addiction in, in my own family. Uh, yeah. Dare I say, <laughs> I get a little addicted myself. So, you know, we're, we're evolving with technology, but it's a very positive story. And to the younger generation doesn't understand what it's like to lose touch with great friends and even family. And then suddenly these new technologies have given us value. It's very hard to measure in dollar terms. But, um, you know, a united world means children in Africa are learning to read. Um, they're able to use their, their phones to access the world's knowledge. I mean, it's hard to, to realize how fundamentally transformative and positive that is from, you know, the year I was born in the 1960s. Yeah, it's funny you say that because the day we're recording this podcast, the front page of the Times, I'll just grab it, says... 
Britons were happier when Victoria was on the throne. Oh no, is, uh, that's such nonsense. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's truly ridiculous. I mean, you could, those kind of happiness indexes always make me indices, I should say. Um, they always make me kind of raise my eyebrows because I think if you plonk down a Victorian into the modern age, they just their mind would explode. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's that's the only problem is the exploding minds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's the hedonic adaptation problem, isn't it? Yes, you just so. Um, and psychologists maybe shouldn't be in this business. So I think we economists need to reassert ourselves. Um, happiness is stable over time, right? So you have a significant negative emotional event, your happiness will, will come back to, to uh, parity. Or a positive event, you get married, have a child, your happiness level goes back. That's, that's the psychology. The question we asked to, uh, to answer is, you know, is society better off or worse off? Thomas Piketty famously said, that the poor are just as poor in 2010 as they were in 1910. That's a direct quote from his book. And then he said, after a century of quote-unquote progress, the middle class got nothing but crumbs. Really. So in 1910, women couldn't vote. It doesn't show up in GDP, but I think if I can say women are happier, and frankly, men are happier to have a more equal society. There certainly weren't civil rights in the U.S. There were lynchings of of African Americans. Um, In 1910, one out of 100 women died on the day of childbirth. I, I think they're happier now to be alive, and so are the husbands and the families. So the, just the health improvements, the inventions of air conditioning, um, the, the reduction in disease, these are all things that have increased the value of our lives, if not our happiness, and we should recognize that. And some of your work, I mean, at the moment, is about these, these intangible things. You mentioned civil yeah, rights. Yeah. You can talk about the environment as well. But I just want to pick you up on the idea of, of GDP as a measure of economic progress, because it's, it's kind of the best we've got, but it's a bit like democracy is the best apart from all the others. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Facebook and iPhones, and I think about the dematerialization you get yes. from that, and the fact I haven't bought a CD in about 10 years. Uh, you know, a what? A What's CD. It? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I see. Sorry. Been out-bantered by it. Um, I mean, uh, do you think... Our, uh, do economists need to set their eyes a bit more firmly on this and... Because it has huge implications for things like, we, we always say we're in a productivity crisis, but if actually we're misrecording GDP, yep. Yep. then it could be that we're not in a growth crisis or a productivity crisis, we're just in a measuring yeah. crisis. Yeah, I had a, a good friend who retired from the military, I, I served briefly, and he, he served a full career in the U.S. Air Force. And then he retired and he was on a pension and he decided he really wanted to relax in Hawaii. And then uh, we, we had a conversation a few months later and he complained about all the income uh, inequality like, Steve, you chose to go to Hawaii and paddle around on a lower retired income, and you're living the quality of life. So um, people make choices in a free society, and inequality is okay. I think as long as there's um, you know, protection of rights and freedoms, um, and I think there are some things that get to provide a baseline of income or, or health protection that are, that are great. But, uh, yeah, as a liberal... You can't criticize GDP. Liberal in the U.S. sense. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't be, a, let's say, a progressive or, yeah. or a Democrat or a left-winger and criticize GDP as this measure that doesn't include things and then turn around and say, and look how poorly it's distributed. It's unfair. Right. <laughs> you can't have your inequality cake and eat it as well, one or the other. And I think another a related issue, of course, is, is that we're not measuring equality of consumption. So if you just look at that's incomes, right. you're that's not right. benefits or health or anything like that. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a very sophisticated take on it. And the, the measurement of consumption inequality is much flatter 
than income inequality. But the most ridiculous complaint is wealth inequality. Like, oh, the concentration of wealth and the poor have so little wealth. Well, the poor have access to credit, you know, credit cards and bank loans and, and automobile loans and student loans. Should we ban those so that there's no negative wealth in the poor? I mean, when my parents, when I grew up, my parents were poor and they had access to credit. Thank God we were able to afford a home. So wealth inequality is a completely misleading statistic. And just to round things off, Tim, um, we're going to go, we've talked a lot about interesting theoretical points, but I'm going to ask you for a run-of-the-mill political prediction. Uh, what's going to happen in November 2020? Oh, in the U.S. elections. In the U.S. elections. The well, presidential one. I'm not going to ask you to name every Senate and House. <laughs> yeah, let's start with Alaska, John. I'd say this about the U.S. elections in 2020. I anticipate um, the Democrats are overreaching on this impeachment nonsense. I think there's been a politicization of the intelligence community, and I, I'm a former intelligence officer. Um, it's, it's really dangerous territory, and I think Americans are going to reject that. That said, um, my chips predictively are on Joe Biden still. I think Joe Biden wins the Democratic nomination and he wins the presidency. That's not who I'm voting for. It's not who I'm rooting for. Um, I'd still like to see a, a low-tax conservative government that, that puts um, conservative Supreme Court justices on the bench um, in place. Do you think that's just a function of the electoral college system and the way it stacks up for the Republicans have to win pretty much all the swing states to... I've studied, the, I've studied the Electoral College so intensively, I, I think it's one of the geniuses of American democracy and where each state um, has to be won. You can't just win the national um, vote. And no, it's very easy for Democrats to win the Electoral College. They just keep bungling it. I mean, the great ideological message of the 2016 election isn't Trumpism because he didn't get a majority of the votes of Americans. It's incompetence of the Democratic candidate and her campaign well on that happy note uh, we're <laughs> going to leave it so, so biden 2020 even if you're you're not necessarily that happy about it that's well, Tim, thanks very much indeed for joining us you bet john thank you planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.